0: The art of unknowing we live in a world which is very much reliant on and oriented towards knowledge the knowledge based society we talk about and the information age and we spend so much time accumulating knowledge and information in fact what passes for an education in a conventional sense is essentially the accumulation and uh, mostly temporary storage of information. (laughs) And we participate in a relationship to that information and that knowledge for the most part whereby we believe that power, in terms of the ability to effect meaningful transformation, arises from knowledge, from information, from knowing, and that meaningfulness, the sense of value and purpose in life, equally arises from information or from knowing, and that we are led to believe and uh, sometimes with some questioning and sometimes rather enthusiastically, can take on this position or this perspective of of seeking information, seeking to understand in terms of conceiving, in terms of our mind's intellectual function, which is remarkable and not without its incredible value and use. But there are also profound limitations in orienting our lives in this way with regard to knowing and knowledge and information. As someone, I don't know who, but rather wisely observed, what is the use of knowing how to put a man on the moon if we can't get on with our neighbors? And one could even take that a little further and Ask the question of what's the use of being able to put a man or a woman on the moon or all this marvelous knowledge and technology we had if we can't even get on with ourselves. A lot of what we encounter when we come into practice is seeing just how hard it is, not just to get on with our neighbors, but simply to get on with ourselves. And the spiritual journey runs counter to many social values or positions. In the context of spiritual practice and understanding, power and meaning, which is that ability to transform, and the basis from which value arises, comes not from knowledge, but ultimately from that which is not knowable in our mind through our conceiving. That there's something about spiritual practice or about our life that we have to approach from a different perspective or a different orientation that requires us to leave our pursuit of certainty and knowledge to one side and to see what might be offered to us by that. There's a, I guess it's a, I'm not sure if it's a poem or a a reflection, but I believe it was Lao Tzu who said, so maybe it's just a reflection. He said, I awoke from dreaming I was a butterfly, and then I wondered, am I a man who was just dreaming of being a butterfly? Or am I a butterfly dreaming of being a man? And there's something rather lovely about that reflection or that question, posing that to oneself, because it's, it's not saying it's one or the other, but it's sort of like, just a moment, what if I wasn't quite so sure? Where would that leave me? And one of the most powerful transforming aspects of practice is that it supports and invites us and allows us to begin to start to unpack some of the certainties that we are assuming to be what frames and defines our life and our world. And something that contributes to this very powerfully in my own experience is the way in which we can also include our experience of the natural world as part of spiritual practice. And Mioshin speaking about the uh, sense of being um, part of all things, that uh, and quoting Ajahn Buddhadasa, very lovely last night, that sense of the power of the natural world when we sense that we're part of something larger. And that the vastness of the natural world can affect us, not just in that sense, but in the way in which when we try and grasp it with our mind, if we really acknowledge the vastness of the cosmos, of the universe, we can't really get our mind around it. We can't really claim to know the vastness of the natural world. It's like looking up at the night sky. You know, if we see a clear, open night and the deep, rich, inky darkness with the little points of light, each representing a a, a glowing mass of gas, like our sun, or a whole galaxy. Some of those little spots are a whole galaxy out there. We just take a moment to really let us in. just. How vast that is. It's something beyond what our mind can really get hold of. And all the both religious and spirit and scientific attempts to explain the existence of this universe fail to really get to that point where it resolves. It's sort of like, well, we can believe in this explanation or that explanation if we wish, but there's something when we just allow ourselves to be open to the vastness of it, that 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 doesn't satisfy. And when we can acknowledge that just the sheer dimensionality of the world we are part of, that we live in, is beyond what our mind can get hold of, there's, there's something humbling in that for our intellect, for our ego. And there's also something quite remarkably uplifting about it. There's a sense of something mysterious that speaks of possibility, that, that kind of opens us in a way that we can't really explain, but that we can know directly and experience directly. And one of the ways that works is that it's really hard for us to sort of look at the night sky in its vastness and its mystery, and look at it and think, well, you know, it really could have been done better. Has anyone had that thought? You know, well, you know, they could have done a better job of that constellation, made it a bit more clear, you know, or if that one could have glowed a bit more brightly, I'd really, you know, give it full marks. We don't look at something that big in that way. You know, we can come into a meditation hall and think, oh, you could do this with it or that with it, We can look at ourselves, what we think of as ourselves. When we can kind of get our mind around something, we very quickly come into relationship to it of thinking, well, what's right and what's wrong, what's better and what's not? And that's something about the way we relate with concepts and the way we relate with language and thinking about things. It seems to take us into that territory, of comparison and judgment and yet when we're not in that place when we're more just in the sense of wow that's really big which you know there's other words we could use but sometimes big because it's quite a small simple ordinary word just like wow really big there's a way in which our mind has to let go of its grip on what's happening and we know this we've I imagine all of us at times, maybe many times, being touched by the natural world in a way that our mind can't really package for us and say, well, that's what it was that happened just there. But something in our heart knows and resonates about this, in this. And we see that when we journey beyond the territory of knowledge, there's something very powerful that we begin to touch into. Knowledge Information, being able to sort of describe, define, categorize, analyze, all of that, it promises security through control and familiarity. Because when things seem out of control or unfamiliar, we very easily start to feel insecure. And that happens to us when we're here on retreat and practicing because the things that we have such firm ideas about and feel very close to us, particularly like ourselves, our own experience, who we think we are, starts to feel a bit more kind of porous and fluid and sometimes a bit shaky or sort of hard to get hold of. And it's scary for us to actually start to experience that to see that that's how it is that it doesn't really fit anymore into the nice tidy little boxes that it used to and so we we seek knowledge we seek to kind of package it up and know how it's going to be because we imagine that will bring us a sense of security we imagine that will give us a sense of reassurance and yet that isn't what we experience that's not what happens Because the more information we get, it seems the less secure we feel. In our culture, we have access to more information about more things than at any other time in human history. And are we more relaxed? Feel more secure? It doesn't look like it to me. And you see, the compulsion in that looking for information and seeking knowledge and information is to get pulled towards that which actually creates fear in us. That we go looking for information and knowledge out of a wish for security, born already out of some sense of unease. And out of that sense of unease, we then get pulled and driven or taken towards that which creates more unease. Newspapers don't sell if they're full of good news. We wouldn't tune into the television news broadcast if we thought it was going to tell us a whole lot of things that were just fine. We tune in because there might be something that's going to be really important that we need to know because we're worried. And half the time we don't even realize that. And The same thing goes on with our mind the way we keep getting drawn towards the thinking, towards the trying to understand and organize things at an intellectual level. It's like we're not recognizing an underlying unease, and we're trying to somehow resolve it by figuring out what's going on, by defining, by naming, by categorizing, by analyzing, by comparing. All that intellectual, mental activity is attempting to create some sense of certainty or fixity or security for us. And yet, the experience, when we when we encounter it, and we do here again and again, the experience of being drawn into all of that is profoundly unsettling. Deeply distressing, in fact, and painful to us. And so, at one level, we really wish it would just stop. It's like, would someone please turn the news off? And yet, somehow we seem to have our eyes glued to the screen so much of the time. There is a profound peace that we begin to recognize and sense when we're no longer orienting in this way towards information that inevitably entangles us with past and future. The past being the source of information and the future being the place in which we seek to apply it. Wendell Berry writes, When despair for the world comes upon me and I awake at the slightest sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go down to where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and where the great heron feeds. I come into the presence of still water and feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. For a while I rest in the grace of the world and am free. The peace of wild things. I'm not trying to idealize the life of creatures who don't have minds like we have. They have their challenges too. But there's something different when we're not living in the world of forethought of grief, that way in which our mind goes into the future, born of the past. This world that we construct and that we imagine to be what is true is so much referenced by or in reference to what we imagine or conceive of as time. Time is a construct and the way we conceive it or imagine it to be is not actually how it is. The past and the future seem so real to us, seem the basis of what we would describe as our lives when unexamined. And the stories of who we are seem to be arising out of these or that which we call past. It seems so real that it has more weight for us much of the time than the present. The place where we actually are somehow seems, when unexamined, when we haven't established ourselves through practice in a direct relationship with where we are, it seems insignificant, this moment, this fleeting, ephemeral place of contact with life right here and now seems fleeting and sometimes insignificant in comparison to the apparent weightiness of all that has gone before and the immense importance of all that will come to be, that has not yet but will, we imagine, we think, come to be. When we live our life in this way, framed and contained within the sense of time and within our conceiving, our thinking, our imagining of this life as somehow a journey from past towards future. There's something profoundly unsatisfactory about this. That the whole sense of duration that we create through thinking about our experience, through being able to remember having images of the past, through having projections into the future. The whole sense of duration that creates and the sense of ourself traveling through that dimension of time, it generates with it the sense of, out of duration, endurance. It's like the sense of... It's hard work. And the sense of struggle and weariness that that brings. And when we look at, or when we consider that maybe our conceiving of time is just that. It's a conceiving. It's a way we communicate and we relate and of course it has its value because if we couldn't all agree that 7:30 was as a certain time, you know we just wouldn't be able to have a, a meaningful you know opportunity to sit and share the Dharma like this. So there's a place for that. there's a conventional validity to that. And yet in another way it's always just here. it's always just now. It's always just this. And any moment you encounter in your life, if you check, you'll find that that's so. It really is. It's not that complicated. It doesn't seem to quite make sense to our mind that it's so. But in our experience, it's always like that. It's always just this. And check again in five minutes if you like. And it'll seem like, but that's five minutes later, but yeah, and no, it's just this it's just this. So much of the grasping and the resistance we become entangled with and the suffering that generates arises out of our believing in that conception of time as a movement, as a journey, a duration. And when we just see it as right here and right now, trying to hold on to something makes no sense because it's just here. It's just this. And equally resisting something makes no sense either, because it's right here, it's just this. And yet, so quickly, so enthusiastically it seems, we slip into, or we jump onto that sense of continuity, moving forward in time, based on the sense that that's what's been going on forever, or at least as long as we've been here. And that ability just to see it directly right in this moment. Oh no, it's just this. Cuts through that. And equally begins to cut through that conceiving of time. Ultimately, the past never was. And the future never will be. It will always be this. And when we start to reflect on that, when we start to sense into the implication of that, and we have to, to some extent, just allow our mind to be a little confused or uncomfortable here, okay? In a really kind way. It's not like we want it to cause it pain, but it's just there's something about this that it doesn't really easily get hold of. And yet there's something in us that hears it and understands that is not confused or surprised by this because we already know this in that depth and dimension of our being which we easily become distant from when we live in the world of concepts and that the disconnection from is a profound source of suffering and cause of the deep distress and lostness of much of our world. In fact, uh, on that score, um, you know, picking up with Ajahn Buddhadasa again. He was once asked, how would you describe the world? And he responded with four words. He said, lost in thought. Lost in thought. And here, we begin to find our truth again. Seeing that time isn't perhaps quite as solid as we might have, or as absolute as we might imagine or conceive it to be, we can also start to then recognize that our whole sense of progress is equally a little on shaky ground. Because progress is this whole idea that we subscribe to as a culture, with, you know, we're all progressing, we're, you know, we're perhaps seeing at the moment the, uh, the unsustainability of the idea of always being able to progress in terms of having more and getting more, because at some point we encounter the finiteness of resources, the limitedness of anything conditioned. But the sense of progress is dependent on movement in time and measurement of something that we value or something that we don't value. And we see on retreat how we so strongly get pulled into a sense of trying to progress, to get somewhere, to go somewhere. And like we want to increase or get better at or have more concentration. That's a classic one. Pretty much everyone I know who meditates wants to be more concentrated. Even if they're really concentrated, they want to be more concentrated. If they're not very concentrated at all, they'd like to be at least a little bit concentrated. (laughs) And everything in between. I've never known it where someone came and said, wow, you know, that's enough for me. <laughs> and the Buddha spoke about it. In fact, he talked about that capacity to calm and steady and still the mind. He said that this goes on beyond what we can imagine. He said it's unfathomable. Our mind cannot grasp how far that process can go. The depths of the concentration, concentrated mind are beyond what we can grasp. And... And so much of where we struggle with practices and how we measure and compare what's happening in terms of duration and in terms of something that we have conceived, like concentration. Like, am I more concentrated than yesterday or than this morning or my last retreat? And if I am, I feel good. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting somewhere. It's like this whole sense of me arises dependent upon that story I'm telling myself about progress in time in relationship to something that I'm measuring. And I feel good. And of course, if the answer is, actually, no, yesterday I was doing quite well, and today it's all falling apart. It's like, oh no, I feel really bad. The whole sense of me arises with a a judgment or a criticism or a sense of failure. I can't do it. Yesterday I came to all the sittings. Today I only made it to half of them. I'm, I'm no good. I can't do it. And this whole sense of using our experience to somehow validate our sense of who we imagine ourselves to be, that we do in our life all the time, we translate that, we transfer that onto our meditation practice. Now, it's inevitable. You can't help but do this. If you manage to never do it ever, you'll be the first person. So don't worry if you notice it. What's important and what's different in meditation practice is we start to see it. We notice how there's all this pressure trying to achieve, to succeed, to get it right, to be better, better than ourself, better than our neighbor, better than You know, our friends back home, we're going to have to tell about it at the end of the retreat, how good we did or how bad we did. All of that. And we tend to pick something that we can measure really easily, like how many breaths before my mind wandered off, or how many minutes, or how many times it happened in the space of one sitting. Those kind of things that we can easily put numbers on because numbers are safe and secure and clear and you can add them one at a time. And they just, you know, keep us entertained. But we can't measure something like openness. We can't say, I'm, um, you know, I had this much openness or that much openness. We can't really measure it. We can sense it, we can know it as a quality. We can recognize it because it's when it's there, it's really, wow. Yeah, we sense what it's like to be open or to be closed. And we might say more or less in comparison to some other experience. But it's a very different quality. Likewise with loving kindness. It's harder to measure than concentration. and So we don't often necessarily take that as the basis for evaluating ourselves. But we might do. We might say, oh now I had this really sweet, lovely, juicy, delightful experience of loving myself or loving all beings or loving my neighbor or whatever it is. Wow, I'm doing really well. And of course, we might have the experience of feeling bored, irritated, angry, feeling really frustrated with ourselves or irritated by our neighbors. Why won't they shut up and stop moving or, you know, whatever we might have. And then again, we find this measurement coming in where we use that experience or the arising of that factor or phenomena within consciousness to somehow define who we imagine ourselves to be. And this whole process of taking a position on what's happening and on ourselves, saying, I'm doing good, I'm doing bad, I'm getting better, I'm getting worse. All of that is just such hard work and so unnecessary. And yet, it seems compelling for us. Now, if you really want to know how you're doing, you could probably, we could all, I think, usefully reflect on this uh, conversation that took place uh, on a retreat that was being taught. It was quite some years ago now. I heard the story from a friend. Um, and it was being taught by Jack Cornfield, one of the senior teachers in our tradition. I think it was in Yucca Valley. And he came in one evening into the staff dining room. And one of the staff there had a friend who was on the retreat. And he asked Jack, he said, Jack, how's my friend doing? Several days into the retreat. And Jack said, he's doing very well. And so the staff member was very happy. He said, oh, how about this person? How are they doing? They're doing very well. <laughs> they was very happy to hear that. And he said, so, so Jack, what do you mean by doing very well? Jack said, "Huh? they're still here. <laughs> Interesting. Still here. We're still here. It's like being able to really honor what that expresses the commitment and the courage and the faith that we're still here. Again and again turning towards our life. It's interesting how it seems it's so uncomfortable for us to to not really quite know who we are or not be able to locate ourselves in terms of some sense of progress or regress that we will tend in the in the in the uncertainty that starts to arise when we can't really clearly evidence or prove to ourselves or to our mind that we're doing good and that we're succeeding in some way, when we can't find compelling evidence for that, rather than just being unsure, it somehow seems reassuring to us to conclude that we're really not doing very well at all. As though Having any, and it's not as though it's—it is that it's like having a negative conclusion about ourselves is preferable to having none, because at least then we know where we are, and even if where we are is somewhere that's really painful or grievous, grievously uncomfortable in our heart, at least then we know where we are, and somehow the urge and the need for certainty, the urge to know and the need for certainty compels us, it seems, to form that conclusion so frequently, so often. And this is why we're so compelled towards the past and the future. Because the images and the pictures that we can select from the past, we can use to create a picture that tells me, this is who I am. This is how I am. This is what I am, based on those stories, those experiences, those roles, those activities that we package up as the story of me, as our past. Or equally, when we imagine and when we think about what will be, what we will do, what we will experience, again, it gives a certain solidity or the appearance of something fixed that we can conceive and say, yes, that's who I will be. And there's a certain security in that. That when we start to put it down, and we're here practicing, putting it down again and again, dropping that compelling pull into the story of the mind, coming back to just here, we can start to sense the, the fluidity, the unfixity, the undefinability of this moment that's, that's flowing, that's moving, that's like water through our fingers when we let ourselves feel it and sense it directly, moment by moment. And there's nothing in it that we can really get hold of that tells us who we are, that defines us, because it's all changing. And sometimes it's, we feel lovely and bright and connected, and other times we feel confused or upset or distressed. And it's moving through, it's moving through. So there's this process of seeking security, of wanting to know how it is, that the unease of our intellectual mind, which we're used to or familiar with using as the primary reference for our life, as the primary compass for our life, we're asked to allow it to be not the compass. To be a little uncertain, to take a risk with the unease that that engenders. Voltaire once said Doubt is indeed an uncomfortable state of mind, but certainty. Certainty is ridiculous. (laughs) To allow ourselves in our practice, gently and kindly, and yet with some courage and commitment to begin to enter into our life right where we are with less reliance upon that sense of knowing where we are or defining where we are or having to compare where we are to somewhere else or something else or someone else. It's like there's something that in us rebels at that prospect that we need to understand if we are to allow this process to take us as deeply as it may. I had a really interesting and powerful experience with regard to this some years ago. All sorts of things happening. I was uh, for the first time visiting a monastery in Australia, Wat Buddha Dhamma, in the uh, the national park, the Daragh. National Park in New South Wales to teach a, a retreat there and I'd arrived uh, I think about a day early so that I had a little chance to get over the jet lag and I was uh, met by one of the uh, the managers of the course and taken up to the little cootie which was about 20 minutes walk from the main meditation hall lovely lovely little space that I was offered and I, I had a day to be spend there and I um, Feeling a bit sort of out of sorts, as I often do, getting off, you know, sort of like 24 hours on a plane. Um, I decided after a little while to go for a run. And just f- found a path going up the sort of out round through the woods and in the bush. I was just up running, went for, I guess I was going for a little while, maybe half an hour or a bit longer. And I noticed a, um, a really interesting, what we say, ridge or what seemed like a skyline, that I thought if I could get up onto there, I'd be able to see through the trees and actually see where I am, because I was really curious and really interested. And so I'm just i quite familiar with sort of being out in the wilderness and that, and so I just sort of checked where I was, sort of had a sense of, okay, there's the path, I'll go just up here, and walked up through the trees to the ridge where I thought I would have a, a good view. And I got up to the top and, in fact, I couldn't see that much from up there because the trees were quite tall at the top and uh, it looked like it was going to be clear, but it wasn't. So okay. And I walked back down the path, or down the hill towards the path. And I walked down the hill towards the path and after a while I said, I should have got to the path by now. Oh, this is interesting. Okay. So I've missed it. Or maybe, I oh don't know, I'll just go back up and check. So I went back up to the top of the ridge and just checked because I'd you know, noticed where the where the sun was and about what my orientation was before I climbed up there. So I followed it back down. I right, no, the path's just down there. I'll just go back down there. And I went back down and I didn't find the path. And I thought, maybe I was going up further. I quite like walking uphill, so maybe I went for longer than I realized. Then it just furthered down. So I kept going down 10, 15 minutes, heading down the hill. and didn't find it. Went a bit further, didn't find it. And the path was running... You know, right angles to where I'd gone up. So it's like, how could I miss that path? Couldn't understand it. So I went back up, and I went back down. I went up and down through this really quite dense forest. That it actually had a wood, had a bushfire through there um, several months earlier. And um, so I was slowly getting more and more covered in soot and scratched in this process. And it started to get dark. And at some point, I realized that I couldn't seem to find the path. But I knew where it was. It was right down there. Because I'd really paid careful attention, and I'm good at that. I know how to do this. <laughs> but it was getting dark, and it's really steep. So I thought, I, I could injure myself. If I get- I- okay, looks like I'm going to have to spend the night up here. And I started to get some leaves and um, things and pile them up. <laughs> And I was wearing just, you know, very light clothes for running in in the Australian summer. It was sort of, I think, February, end of February or maybe March, end of summer. I was thinking, well, it's not going to be too cold up here. I'm not going to freeze to death. But on the other hand, there's snakes and there's scorpions and there's all these things in Australia that, you know, it's kind of scary. So I was starting to feel kind of a little bit unsettled, but I was pretty sure I knew where the path was that in the morning I'd be able to go and find it. Okay, it's a bit obvious to you, isn't it? Um, But I was quite sure. And then I I sat down on this pile of leaves, and the moon actually just came through at this point, and I started to think about what was happening, and I, I just suddenly realized, actually, I don't know where the path is. And in that moment, this wave of visceral terror burst through my body, and it was like a lightning bolt. It was so powerful, it was just like it just swept through me and just completely blew my whole sense of what was going on into the water. I was terrified, and into my mind, in that millisecond, the sense of, "I'm completely lost, I have no idea where I am. I could be facing 180 degrees the wrong way. Nobody knows I'm here. I'm going to die out on this hill.") <laughs> And then then I realized, I don't know where the path is. But I do know that it's not where I think it is. (laughs) Because I've examined that piece of ground so many times. So I thought, okay, you don't know where it is. This is scary now. Up until then, I wasn't really scared. But this is scary. You could be lost out here. You didn't tell anyone before you went off. And actually, they're not even going to come looking for you until the next day when you don't turn up for the opening talk. (laughs) But I thought, okay, what can I do here? Well, I know, even though I'm sure it's down there. It's not down there because I've looked really carefully. So I'm just going to try a little bit over here where I know it's not. (laughs) And so I found a stick, I, it was the, the moon had got quite bright then, I found a stick, felt confident I could, get, I could check down this way, because I didn't really want to spend the night out there, as you can imagine, and I just said, okay, so it's not, I'll just try 25 degrees to my left and I'll check that, if it's not down there I'll come back up, I'll try 25 degrees further round, and just start looking around where it could be, and so I just 25 degrees from where I'd kept been going down before, and with the stick, made my way down the hill, and within about 10 minutes I found the path. Out breath. <sighs> Feeling a little embarrassed and foolish, I jogged back to my cootie. It was very interesting, you know. I was trapped up there. Not by the bush, but by the desperate compulsion and need to hold on to the sense that I knew where the path was. Not that I couldn't find the path, but that I couldn't risk not knowing where it was. And in doing so, the terror was there, but really only for a few moments. It felt actually like quite a long time. You know, those moments when there's that kind of intensity, it's sort of time isn't really relevant to that anymore. The amount of experience packed into it is immense. though it was really just a moment. And so that sense of, wow, I was trapped by my unwillingness to face the fear of not knowing. That's what trapped me on that hill. Really sobering. And really like this incredible metaphor for practice. Like when we really imagine we know where the path should be. Or what it would look like. And that therefore where I am can't be the right path. Which we do so easily, and allow ourselves to know, to lose a sense of trusting, a sense of what's possible for us, just trusting where we are and the capacity we have to explore from that place. Like, until I really let myself acknowledge that I didn't know where I was, I couldn't actually be where I was. I was only in this relationship to where I thought I had to get to. Or should be, which was actually not where I needed to go at all, but quite the opposite. Now, interestingly, uh, the uh, postscript to that story is that at the end of the retreat, in a bright, sunny afternoon, I thought, I can't believe that happened. How did that happen? So I went back up to that place. <laughs> and I followed the path, and I saw, there's the hill, okay. And I, I, I was really paying attention to see oh yeah so okay it's really got everything very clear in my mind as I walked up the hill and looked around thought yeah okay this is what happened interesting turn around and and I know where the path was walked back down and it wasn't there (laughs) really and I thought you know I thought oh boy this is gonna really look bad if you've managed to get lost this time (laughs) properly lost but, you know, I just went back right up the hill and said, okay, you think it's down there. You know it's down there. It's not. And straight away, I just, my whole sense was, no, it can't be not where I thought it was. Again. And, but I straight away went back down to the path where I was sure it wouldn't be. Still, my body was telling, my sense was telling, me, it won't be down there, but it was. And as I stood at the bottom and looked up, and it was still daylight this time, because I'd done that straight away, looked at him and I realized I could just see there was a way in which the the ridge was just slowly curving. And as I thought I was staying exactly square to what my original orientation was, as I was going up, I was just slowly being turned. And I hadn't realized that, couldn't see it, couldn't recognize it. And my really false confidence that I knew what I was doing and that the sun was still in exactly the same place with regard to where I was standing was wrong all the way. So it was quite a, a lesson, and uh, something that really continues to speak to me about the the power of allowing ourselves to enter into that unknown territory, to face the understandable and sometimes really challenging fear that might arise for us when we don't know where this is going. But to to be able to trust, to be able to meet that fear and that uncertainty with, with courage and with trust, to just see, okay, we didn't get here by accident. We never got anywhere by accident. And that when we take the risk of allowing ourselves to be there, we can start to sense that somehow we are held in the truth of where we are. Not in a way that our mind can really grasp. It's like there's no way I could have convinced myself that by giving up on knowing where I was, I would be able to find my way. It's not something the mind can do for itself. It's something that comes when we allow ourselves to trust the truth of where we are. To trust the truth of what's actually happening for us. allowing ourselves to rest allowing ourselves to trust that our life has brought us here because this is the place where we will learn what we need to learn it requires sometimes an immense humility as well as an immense courage and that very humility It's where we, in a way, start to understand true understanding. It's like somehow standing underneath. Rather than seeking to stand over our experience with a sense of, this is how it is. But that sense of standing under, for me, understanding that it's like looking up at the sky, standing under. And just allowing the vastness and the openness of life to touch us, to wash through us, to move us in the way that it does. That which we can trust in is what is here. is what is now, is with us. And we can speak of the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha, that capacity for awakening, the truth of things as they are, and the teachings that point to that, and the community of fellow practitioners, the interconnectedness that we have with all of life that is true, that is what is here. That we can learn to rest in this. And in resting in this, come to see, come to understand, come to know for ourselves what it means to be alive. Not in some sense of duration, of alive for 70 years or 90 years or 50 years, or 20 years, or whatever, but alive in the sense of here, now, this. So I'd like to finish with a quote from Ajahn Suchitai. Did I quote him already? Did I mention his name? uh, he's an English Buddhist monk uh, and wonderful teacher and I regard myself as fortunate to know him also as a friend and uh, there's something that uh, he said that speaks to this for me very well which I'd like to share he said there is no real learning on the intellectual level there is only a kind of learning that we do when we have the humility to recognize that really The learning part is when we go to the edge of where we know and where we control and the nobility of our life the nobility of our purpose the aspiration of our life says keep going past the area where you can't control it anymore and trust for me this is the heart of devotion of faith of surrender not a surrender of responsibility But a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is to live in accordance with truth to honor truth and to trust the truth of our life as it is what lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of the deathless the joy of the boundless the mysterious vastness Of life. So when we bow down in our practice we can perhaps remember that among other possibilities, we're bowing down to this. And when we open ourselves in our practice, perhaps we can remember that we're opening ourselves to this. The mysterious vastness of life. So let's sit quietly for a moment or two together. So may we all, in our practice and our lives, come to deeply trust in the goodness of our aspiration, in the truth of the way things are, and that Vastness, which is all around and within what we call ourselves and all things. For our own welfare, for the welfare of all beings.